text for this morning is Psalm 5. There are two things that I want to note by way of introduction to this psalm. First of all, the psalm begins, as actually many psalms do, with a cry to be heard. Give ear to my words, O Lord. But if you look a little more closely at the psalm's request to be heard, you find that it is much more lengthy in this psalm than it is in most psalms. In most psalms, that cry to be heard is a brief but important reminder that we are dependent on God for all good things. But the length of the petition in this psalm makes that petition a much more important part of the psalm. It actually takes up the first seven verses of a psalm that's only 12 verses long, over half, therefore, of the psalm, is devoted to this cry to be heard. The second thing I want to notice about this psalm is that In the last part of that psalm, which is a series of petitions that that David makes, verses 8 to 12, there is only one petition that pertains directly to himself. That's the one you find in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. That is the heart of the psalm, the main idea of the psalm, the reason why David is bringing this prayer to God. And so we're going to consider the psalm under the theme, Lead me in your righteousness. And we're going to consider, first of all, a need to be heard. That's verses 1 to 7. Secondly, a prayer for guidance, verses 8, 9, and 10. And finally, a concern for the righteous, verses 11 and 12. A need to be heard, a prayer for guidance, a concern for the righteous. David's petition to be heard is found in verses 1 to 3, and he adds to it various other matters in verses 4 to 7. Looking at that petition, you see that he repeats the request to be heard three times. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. The first petition is just a simple request to be heard. David tells us nothing about the circumstances under which he's bringing this prayer to God. He doesn't tell us anything about his needs or his desires in connection with this request. He simply asks that God hear him. In the second petition, consider my meditation. He doesn't go beyond that, but he does give us a little more detail because he says, consider, that is, in the first place, he simply asks God to hear, but now he asks God to take time to think about what David is asking him to consider his meditation, and he calls his prayer meditation here as well. And I think what he has in mind is not simply that 
His prayer itself is a meditation, but that there are various thoughts in his own mind, various desires in his own soul, which he is opening up to God's sight here. Consider my meditation means then, look into my inward parts, see what is there, consider the whole prayer, but also the context of my own soul, out of which that prayer arises. Consider my meditation, that is, know all my thoughts and desires inwardly, so that you may respond appropriately to my prayer. In the third petition, give heed to the voice of my cry. That word give heed means pretty much the same again as give ear to my words. But notice that he speaks here of the voice of my cry. And here we come to the problem. David is telling God by that word, voice of my cry, that he is in trouble and needs God's help. He also adds to that petition, that third petition, my king and my God. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God. Now that is, first of all, of course, an expression of humility with regard to God. David is saying, you are my king. I am your subject. You are my God. I am your servant. I come before you acknowledging my own humble position in regard to you. But it's also bold for him to say such things because there's implicit in that naming of God in that way a reminder to God that as his king and God, God has assumed certain obligations to him. God has become his king. God has become his God. God has committed himself to David and to David's help. And so David is reminding God of those obligations God has towards him, to which God has committed himself. The other three lines in those first three verses, for to you I will pray and the remaining lines as well. All are expressions in which David says, I'm praying to you. To you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. And of course what David means by that is that he's not going to go to anyone else. He's not going to seek his help from another person. He's bringing his petition to God. And he's bringing that petition to God alone as the sole source of help for him. There is no one else to whom he can go. To you I will pray. He brings that petition now in the first place as he's writing the psalm. But he says, I'm going to renew that petition in the morning. And I will continue to renew it in the morning until you have given me answer to my prayers. And finally, then, in verse 3, my voice, not only my voice you shall hear in the morning, but in the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. That's actually a somewhat weak translation of the Hebrew. If you translate the Hebrew literally here, you would probably come up with something like, in the morning... I will set it out before you and will watch. We may speak 
to illustrate the idea here of a man who sets out food for birds, for example, and then sits back to watch what the birds will do with that food. David is saying here to God, I will set out my petitions before you. I will lay them all out, all those petitions that you find in verses 8 through 12. I'll lay them all out before you, and then I will sit and watch, waiting for your answer, waiting with expectation for you to show me how you are going to respond to the requests that I make to you. There are many lessons about prayer here in these verses. First of all, and most importantly, of course, bring your troubles to God. However small or large they may be, bring your troubles to God. Secondly, apply yourself to prayer. David says, in the morning, that is, at the time when prayer is appropriate, at the beginning of the day, before we take our work up, commit your prayers to God. Apply yourself to it day after day. Be diligent in prayer. Expect an answer. Jesus says, in fact, to us, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened. And he gives to us the example of the importunate widow who would not let the judge alone until that unbelieving and wicked judge had given to her what she wanted simply to get rid of her. Jesus says to us, be persistent in your prayers. If your prayer is a righteous prayer, don't let it fall to the ground after making that prayer once. Continue to pray until God gives you an answer. Take for your example your father Jacob, who would not let the angel at Peniel go until he had blessed him. In the third place, open your mind to God. Let him see what is in your heart. Don't separate in your mind between the specific requests and prayers you are making to God and what the rest of you desires and thinks. Open up your mind to him and let him see all that is there within you. In the fourth place, be humble as well as bold. David's humility we saw is expressed in those words, my king and my God. He is your king and your God. You come to him who is one, who is one much greater than yourself. And you must be humble in his presence. But also, because he is your father in heaven and merciful towards you, you can be bold with him. You can make your petitions known and bring those petitions again and again until he answers. Renew your petitions every morning. And finally, expect an answer. Now, in verses 4 to 6, David talks about God's hatred of wickedness. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Notice in those three verses that there are three negative statements and three positive statements. In the first place, David tells us what God is not and will not do with regard to wickedness. And in the second place, 
He tells us what God is and will do with regard to wickedness. Notice also in these verses that David has a particular emphasis upon sins of the tongue. The boastful, he says, shall not stand in your sight. And then in verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The emphasis is on sins of the tongue, and we're going to see how important that is when we get down to verses 9 and 10. Now David says, then, first of all, that God is not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. He doesn't tell us how God actually does feel about wickedness. As far as we know from this one statement, and without reference to the rest of the psalm or to other statements of Scripture, the implication behind this statement may simply be that God is indifferent towards evil. He doesn't take pleasure in it, but what is his attitude towards it? We know that he does not take pleasure in it, and we certainly would not expect him to take pleasure in it. But what more can we say? David begins to build on that statement then. Nor shall evil dwell with you. God has a house here on earth, a holy house in which he dwells, and David is saying, evil is not going to find a place in that house. There is no room for evil in the house of God or in the family of God. God will not make a place for it there. He will not allow it to dwell with him. And finally, the boastful shall not stand in your presence. Perhaps the wicked cannot dwell in his house, but perhaps also they might be able to come into his presence, at least momentarily, and the answer that David says to that, gives to that suggestion is no, not at all. They will not even be allowed to stand in his sight. Notice also that word boastful here. The Psalms often use expressions with which we're not very familiar and which seem to us somewhat confusing, and I think this is another one. Why would he speak of these wicked men as boastful? What's so special about this matter of boasting? Well, I think it's inherent in wickedness that it is boastful because the nature of wickedness is that it will not depend on God. It will not acknowledge that from God comes all good. When the wicked come, therefore, or try to come into the presence of God, their attitude is not, you are my king and my God, I am dependent on you for all things, but their attitude is rather, I'm going to tell you what I am like. I'm going to tell you what I've done. I'm going to tell you what I've said. I'm going to tell you all the wonderful things about myself, like that Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, who said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. They're boastful in that they come before God with their pride, with a total lack of dependence upon God, in their self-dependence. David goes on then to show us how God is and how God acts towards the wicked and wickedness. 
You hate all workers of iniquity. That's a pretty strong statement, especially in light of the things that we're accustomed to hearing today. You hate all, all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David, in those last two statements, I think, begins to zero in on the particular problem he has with wicked men and the particular problem that he's going to bring to God in verses 8 and following. He speaks of these wicked men as those who speak falsehood, who are deceitful, and who are bloodthirsty. By bloodthirstiness, he doesn't mean that they're coming against him with a sword in order to take his life but rather that within them there's a desire for the ruin of his soul. They are bloodthirsty in the sense that they do not desire David's good, but they desire his harm. They desire his spiritual harm. But David says, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That word abhors is even stronger than the word hates. You think that the expression, you hate all workers of iniquity, is strong, then this is even a stronger statement. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David here puts to rest any idea, people of God, that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. God hates sinners, as well as their sin. That's what this psalm says to us. In fact, what David is saying here is that it belongs to the character of God to hate sin and to hate sinners. He doesn't say this has to do just with these circumstances at this particular time with these particular men whom I'm talking about, but he says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. This belongs to your character to hate wickedness and also to hate sinners. He is a holy God. He must, of necessity, out of his own character, hate those who sin against him. God loves people of God, the righteous. And he loves us only because we are in Christ Jesus. He cannot love us merely as sinners any more than he can love our sin. In verse 7, then, David goes back to... Oh, we should, we should ask, what's the relationship of this, then, to verses 1 to 3? In verses 1 to 3, David asks to be heard. In verses 4 to 6, he talks about God's hatred of sin and of sinners. What's the relationship between them? Well, that relationship is expressed in verse 4 where David says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. In other words, give ear to my words because of the fact that you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. What David is saying then is that he has a matter of wickedness to bring before God. And he brings it before God because he knows the character of God as one who hates sin and who will deal with it, who will deal with it in his righteousness and his justice. Hear my prayer, O Lord, for 
You are not God who takes pleasure in wickedness. But that means, you see, then that David also expects different treatment for himself. That's a remarkable thing. He acknowledges God's hatred of sin and of sinners, and yet expects that God will hear him. He says in verse 7, then, Lead me, excuse me, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. It's interesting that David uses the word temple there, isn't it? The temple didn't exist when David wrote this psalm. The temple was built by his son Solomon. David could have referred to the tabernacle or to the tent that he had set up for the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And he referred to the temple. He wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with a view to the future. It's not just a personal prayer, but a psalm that by the work of the Spirit was intended to be used in the temple and sung by all of God's people as they came into God's presence. But the question is, why is it that David expects this different treatment? Why is it that he expects to be heard, to be received by God, as he comes into the house of God? Well, the first thing is that he comes there to worship. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. I, in fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. He does not come then to boast, but he comes in worship. He comes with fear, not with deceit and falsehood, but with trembling and with awe. And he acknowledges, as he comes into the presence of God, his need for God's mercy. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. It's not in him, he says, to come and to stand there. I cannot do this on my own righteousness, on my own merits, by my own power. I have nothing in myself with which to come into the presence of God. I come as one who is lowly, but I come also as one who is wholly dependent on the multitude of God's mercy. That makes him different than those wicked men who are boastful, who have deceit and falsehood on their tongue. is one who has his whole dependence on God's mercy, on God's loving kindness, on God's goodness towards him. And as such, he can expect that God will hear him and will receive him and will give to him the answer he seeks. That brings us to our second point, verses 8, 9, and 10, David's prayer for guidance. As I said in the introduction, verse 8 is the heart of the psalm. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. This is the, the main 
thought in David's mind, the main petition that he makes, lead me in your righteousness. Now what does that imply? Well, it implies in the first place that there is a path that David must walk here in the world. The path of God's commandments. That's the path of righteousness. But David calls that path your righteousness. What that means, people of God, is that David is here calling on God to lead him in the path of the commandments because the path of the commandments is the path of the righteousness of God himself. In the commandments, God is not simply saying to us, you must do these things, but he's saying to us, this is what I am like. And you must do these things in order to be like me. The law is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And David prays not just lead me in your commandments, but lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in that way that is the way that you yourself are and walk. And of course, such a petition is an acknowledgement that David needs help to walk there can't do it by himself. If he's going to walk there in that way, God must take him by the hand as a father would take a very small child by the hand, a child who's just barely learning to walk, and support that child and lead that child to the place that he has to go. That's the kind of help David needs. God must support him. God must take him by the hand and lead him because David is a very small child, an infant, with regard to the ability to walk in God's commandments. He adds also, notice, make your way straight before my face. Now that doesn't imply that God's ways are crooked. God's ways are straight. Why pray that then? Well, because of David's blindness. The problem is not in the way, but in David himself. He can't see that way clearly. His own blindness, his own weakness of mind, his own sins make it difficult for him to see clearly what God would have him do. And so he says, not only lead me, but also make that way straight. Make it plain to me. Make me able to see that way so that I can walk there clearly. But there's even more to it yet than that. Because David goes on to say there is no faithfulness in their mouths. The problem David has here is not just that he has an inherent inability to walk in God's way, but that he has enemies who are opposed to him walking in that way. These enemies want to lead him astray. They want to confuse him about what it is that God would have him do. They want to set snares for him in that way so that he will fall in them. They want to turn his feet aside from the path of God's commandments. He has enemies 
And he already has said that he is ready, has talked, in other words, about bloodthirsty men, that is, men who desire destruction. Well, now he's showing us what it is that they are attempting to do. They are attempting his destruction by confusing him and blinding him with respect to the righteousness of God. He shows us first the character of these men in their speech. There is no faithfulness in their mouths. Their words can't be relied on. That's basically what he's saying here. They may at times speak the truth. They will speak the truth if it serves them to speak the truth. But they will also speak the lie if they find it convenient and helpful to use the lie. They're just as comfortable with speaking the lie as speaking the truth. They speak, you see, not because they have any desire to speak truth, not because they acknowledge their, that their tongues are under the control and direction of God, but they speak as men who are boastful, independent of God, who acknowledge no need of God in their own lives. And so they use their tongues for their own purposes. And they use their tongues in whatever way works for them. There's nothing to govern their tongues outside themselves. They are a law unto themselves. And because they are a law unto themselves, there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their words cannot be trusted. David shows us why that is so in the rest of verse 9. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. He traces their words from their inner being, their inward part, through their throats to their tongues. The whole process of speaking. And in that whole process of speaking from their inward part, to the actual utterance of the words with their tongues, it's all corruption and wickedness. Their inward part is destruction. That is, in their minds and wills, in their desires and emotions, there is destruction. There is no beneficent will towards David, nor love for David or for any of God's people, no love even for fellow men. There is no love for God. There is no desire to do any good in them. Their inward part is destruction. It is like that destruction into which ultimately they will go. Their throat is an open tomb. That's a very striking image there. We speak often of the mouth of the grave, comparing the grave to a mouth. And of course, if you speak of the grave as of the mouth of the grave, you're speaking that way because, first of all, the opening of the grave, especially in those days when graves were mostly in caves, the grave opening of the grave looks like a mouth. But also because the grave takes things into it. But David is not here comparing the grave to a mouth. He's comparing the mouth or the throat to a grave. He turns the image on its head and he says, 
their mouths are like graves. They open their mouth, what? To swallow the righteous. That's an image that's also used in the Psalms. To swallow the righteous to their own destruction. They open their mouths and there is in their mouths, in their throats, that destruction which dwells in their inner parts. Out of their throats and out of their mouths, therefore, comes the stink of death. The stink of corruption. They have, we may say, spiritual halitosis. But they cover that spiritual halitosis with the breath mints of flattery. They flatter with their tongue. In other words, they use smooth words, words of praise, words of kindness, and all kinds of good words to those whom they seek to deceive in order to make the trap more effective. Their inward part is destruction, and they hope to add to the piles of destruction and corruption by swallowing up the righteous. Their throat is an open tomb, and they flatter with their tongue. It's because of this, people of God, that I chose to read this morning from Luke chapter 20, where the leaders of the Jews came to Jesus in order to try to ensnare him. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. There's their deceit and falsehood. That they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. There's the destruction that is in them. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. There's their flattery. They don't mean those words, of course. They're simply sweetening the trap with some honey. We may well believe, people of God, that our Lord Jesus Christ, upon hearing these wicked leaders of the Jews, prayed exactly this prayer, which David here prays in Psalm 5. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongues. And the response to that is, pronounce them guilty, O God. David had described the character of God in verses 4 to 6. Now he calls upon God to act according to his character. These wicked men come to lead me astray, lead me away from the path of righteousness. Bring them into judgment. Judge what they have done. Pronounce them guilty. Let them fall by their own counsels, the counsels they have taken against me. Let those counsels become a trap for themselves. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgression. That word, multitude, in the last part of verse 10, is the very same word that you find in verse 7 with regard to mercy. 
I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. That is, banish them from your presence in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. In other words, David's not just concerned about himself either here in this prayer. He's concerned about the honor of God. These men in acting against David have acted also against God, have lifted up their, themselves in rebellion against him, against his righteousness, and against his word. David seeks from God that God will act against these men and for himself. brings us to the third point. A concern for the righteous, verses 11 and 12. Stands in contrast to his petition in verse 10. With regard to the wicked, he says, pronounce them guilty, cast them out, let them fall. But with regard to the righteous, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Notice three times David repeats really the same petition. And the petition is that they may have joy. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let all those also who love your name be joyful in you. Why all of a sudden this concern for the righteous? From verse 1 all the way through verse 10, David has been praying for himself and for himself alone. We have no indication anywhere in those 10 verses that anyone else is involved in this matter, which he is bringing before God. But suddenly in verse 11, he changes gears and he begins to pray for the righteous. Why? Why all of a sudden this changing of years? Well, first of all, people of God, I think it is an act of great selflessness on the part of David. He is in trouble. He is in great trouble because of these enemies who are seeking to lead him astray. But in his trouble, he does not forget the others of God's people. He prays for them. Prays for them too. And he prays really, I think, in asking that God may give them joy that they may escape the trouble and temptation into which he has fallen. But there's another thing here too, and that is that David recognizes that he doesn't stand alone. He's part of a body, part of the people of God. And as the scriptures say in the New Testament, when one member suffers, all the members suffer with him. What affects David will affect the rest of God's people. And he's praying not only then that God will save him from his enemies, but God will save also all the righteous, all his own people, from any evil effects that may come upon him because 
upon them because of the temptation and trouble which David himself is enduring. And that's especially important in this context because David is their anointed king and a prophet sent by God to speak God's word to them. If it's true of every child of God, no matter how insignificant he may think himself, that what he suffers must affect the body, then it's certainly true of the anointed Old Testament Messiah, the one whom God has sent to be a type of Christ and to rule over and to speak his word in the name of Christ, that anything that affects him will also affect the people of God. God does not forget, David does not forget that he's part of a body. It's one of the complaints, people of God, that we may well have against many, many popular hymns, especially those hymns of the late 19th century, which are so often concerned with self and with self alone. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. Now, there's nothing wrong with those words in themselves, but the problem is, isn't it, with so many of these hymns, other hymns as well, that there's no concern for the people of God at large. It's all me and my God. When I survey the wondrous cross, it's me, I, mine, and you, God, but never us, never the righteous. The Psalms are not that way. The Psalms speak in the context of God's people. The Psalmists, even in their most personal prayers, have an awareness that they do not stand alone. They stand in and of the body of Christ. So David's prayer is that God will give to these righteous joy because it is in his character again to do so. It's in his character to hate wickedness and to hate sinners. It's also in his character, as David says, to bless the righteous. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. God defends them. God sets up his favor, his grace around them as a shield to guard them against all the attacks of evil men. By way of application, people of God, we may note that there are many, many today, even those in the church, even those who go under the name of Christ, who seek to lead the people of God astray from the righteousness of God. You read, for example, of those who look at the New Testament commands about women being office bearers in the church and say, well, that's culturally conditioned. Paul's not speaking for our time. He's speaking only for his own time. You read of those also who are changing the age-old and honored methods of interpretation of the scriptures and trying to apply different methods of interpretation to the scriptures to make the scriptures say different things, things that you would not expect them to say if you listen to the voice of our fathers over the last 2,000 years. They try to lead the people of God astray. They use their tongues, their words, 
not to submit themselves to what the Word of God has to say, but to try to bend that Word to their own desires, and also to seek to lead all the people of God down the path that they themselves have chosen to follow. It's very necessary, people of God, that we make this prayer our own. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before my face. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen.